Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How's it going? Good. I heard you have a lot of energy today. I do have a lot of energy. It's a beautiful gray Thursday morning. I might have to take out beautiful. It is gray, but it's your favorite weather. So I do love gray weather. It's actually extremely nice here. Oh yeah. Micah's in upstate. I'm in New York City. So that's fun. We uh, have a bunch of cool links today and we have kind of a different and interesting topic for our nerd alerts. Yeah. An expert from a very real life situation. I had a client reach out to me this week about a project that was fast paced and there was a pricing component involved that I need to figure out how to price it. I need to figure out how to manage the pricing. And I came to Micah and we had this discussion and we said, hey, we should talk about this in Nerd Alert. So, yeah, a lot of interesting things around pricing and freelancing came up and we were like, this would be an interesting thing to have a conversation about and touch on a handful of topics. Especially because we're in a world where the money talk is really scary for creatives and seems very taboo, but it shouldn't be. And if yeah. the more we talk about money, the more creatives will stop getting underpaid. And that's a great thing. That is a great thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, and on top of that, we have a bunch of cool links. A handful of our links are practical and useful stuff this week. And so our first link is very interesting, Olivia. I see your name is on this. What the heck is going on? What is this? What's our first link today? Yeah. I'm teaching a workshop on typography and design. I'm teaching it in conjunction with the illustration department, which is a school um, to teach all sorts of creative skills. And it's my first workshop with them. And I'm really excited. It's a four-week workshop. You meet with me and just a handful of other students. It's going to be a small group to talk about type and design. We're mostly going to be focusing on letter form since that is my specialty. We'll be learning how to create expressive letter forms with typography or lettering. We learned some history of the evolution of letter forms and everyone's going to come out with a personal project at the end of that. That could be a logo for your website. That could be some lettering to accompany an illustration you've made. All sorts of things. You know, I'll also be discussing how to find affordable fonts and find inspiration. So covering quite a few things. There's going to be a maximum of 10 people in the class. So nice and cozy. Mm, We're going to have really great discussions and it'll be a great time. So that starts August 17th if you're interested. What was the lead up to you offering this class with them? Because you and I have done classes that are similar to this before. I assume that they approached you saying, hey, we think you're awesome. Yeah. So (laughs) more or less. Because you are awesome. (laughs) Stop it. Embarrassing me on the podcast. (laughs) Not for my friends, mom. Um, The creator of the illustration department is Giuseppe Castellano, who is incredibly wonderful and talented art director that I actually worked under when I worked at Penguin Random House. And he was Uh. my first boss, also one of my first mentors in the space. And he really gave me a lot of confidence I needed at the start of my career and led me to work on wonderful projects and gave me incredible opportunities. So it's, you know, a great opportunity for us to work together. I really believe in what he does and his mission to move education forward. So I'm excited to have a partnership and run this course with them. And you are one of the most talented people that I know in terms of expressive typography, custom lettering, making something with a lot of personality. And so I imagine that's going to be a really interesting take on uh, typography and design class. That sounds really fun. 
Thanks, Micah. I'm all <laughs> red now. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got a chance to share because I think a handful of league people would be really interested in learning from you about that thing. Thanks. And if anyone has any questions, just reach out to me or to find me, email me. My Insta handle is Olivia K Letters. I am happy to answer any questions. I've already gotten a few and just to make sure if you're wondering if the class is right for you, I can talk to you about it. Cool. Cool. Our next link I'm super excited about. Did Hugo find this one? He must have. It's great. I, I love it. It's a showcase of brush lettering with Fast, aggressive strokes is the headline. <laughs> but I think it's some great inspiration. It's just a huge list of lettering artists and along with images of their work and really exciting, energetic brush lettering. I do have a caveat. Oh. I don't know if all of this is actually brush lettering. Some of the lettering in here, an example is Luca Barcelona. He has one that says, take your pleasure seriously. It's not as much a brush as I think either a customized nib or a ruling pen is what they're called, or a cola pen, mm. um, which is actually made from taking an old Coca-Cola can and folding it a bunch of times to make a nib which what? I've done and oh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. We should actually make a tutorial on that for the league. That could be really fun. That would be really that. fun. It's really unpredictable and scrapes across the paper rather than a clean brush line. And it makes these letter forms that you don't quite know what they're going to look like until you put your nib to the page um, because the actual nib is broad and it also has an unevenness. So that creates this really energetic look that not many people know how that's made. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to share that knowledge. Gosh, some of this stuff, I so wish, I wish I had an excuse to use something like this more often. Yeah, there's a lot of variety in here too. Some a little bit cleaner, some really messy, but has a great energy to it. And I, I think love looking too, at the end of this showcase, there's a handful of fonts that are linked to. They're also yeah. like pretty darn cheap, interesting yeah. brush fonts, which I love collecting. I know, you're a, big, you're a big handwriting brush font guy. Which I never actually use them. I just love collecting them. I will. I can't tell you how many fonts I've paid for, and I'm like, I would love to use this, so I'm gonna buy it, and then don't mm. actually have a thing to use it on. I I think that's happened to me once or twice. <laughs> I'll be like, I'm gonna use this for my personal branding, and then I rarely find instances where I can use it outside of that, and then I just have it. But it's okay because I'm supporting type designers, and I feel good right. about putting my money where my mouth is. So right, right. <laughs> You know, it's not a bad thing. So that's um, some cool inspiration to get you started. Yeah, yeah. Um, from other inspiration, I did not find this link. I'm super excited to share it, but it was a link from CSS Tricks. And I thought it was going to be super tech nerdy because CSS Tricks already sounds tech nerdy. And I know <laughs> their articles, but it's actually about a new variable font that came out. And the title is Getting the Most Out of Variable Fonts on Google Fonts, which there is some, you know, technical handiness in this article, but it's a really also cool showcase of this new open source variable font that I'm really excited to see. Yeah, yeah. So the font is called Recursive Sans and Mono. There's a Mono version of it as well. And I remember when this came out, maybe we shared this in the league for members at one point, but it's one of those families that, A, it's a variable font, so it's an infinite amount of variability in terms of weight and slant and stuff like that. 
It's also one of those super families where it just seems there's an endless amount of things that you can make with it. So the reason it probably seems so vast is because um, with a variable font, you define axes and each axis defines a certain style um, that's the output for the font. And so there are five variable axes in this and it has 64 presets or instances, which is why I think it seems so vast. And I think what's really interesting about this font, which is described as type that combines fresh aesthetics with the latest in font tech, is that the axes are really unusual. Uh, typically, the axes will control the weight. So you can have an axis that you can slide for a lightweight to a dark weight. But here, the axes are actually monospacedness. So you can move from a monospace font to a sans font, which I've never seen. Casualness. So you can move between the normal linear style to a brushy casual style. And these are pretty unusual and seems fairly innovative ways to add some character and excitement in a typeface, but also have it more restrained and therefore just can be used across many more purposes or mediums or use cases. So there's lots of technical details and how variable fonts work as well as how to make it work for web design. But I mean, I was just already sucked in from just the aesthetics and seeing a new iteration of a variable font. Yeah. One of the interesting axes that I don't see very often either is the optical size axis. Love that one. And it just adjusts some of the letter forms to make it more readable at different sizes. When a font is huge, there's more leniency in the way that you read the characters versus when text is really tiny. And so to add in a slider to be able to say, I know I want to make this tiny and this is how much I want to adjust those characters and visually see it. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. And that optical size for listeners that don't know helps with legibility. So typically when you set an optical size for a smaller size, there's going to be less contrast in the letter forms. They're going to look more regular just because they'll be easier to read at that smaller size. You maybe will lose some of the details. And then for bigger sizes, you get the great details, the great contrast. But with a slider for variable fonts, it also counts for the in-between. Maybe you have a subhead that's not quite your body copy, but not quite poster size, and you need to figure out the right balance between text and display weight. I think that variable fonts allow for that in-between, which is really exciting. Mm. So this is both an interesting intro article, because there's a lot of topics about variable fonts in here that you might not know, and because it's such a unique and interesting variable font. Uh, it explains what some of those things you might find interesting are at a beginner level. And then it is also awesomely technical in terms of they actually make a little editable code pen where it's the code to be able to mess with the thing and be able to see the effects in real time that you can play with the code and change it. I know what a code pen was till I learned coding, but it is a very cool tool. For <laughs> it is. It's kind of like, here's, you know, like let's embed all of the code that you would need for a website in a tiny little box that you can put in a blog post. Yeah, definitely helps you visualize creative coding, basically. Yeah. So people who are interested in variable fonts in general will find some interesting stuff here. People who are interested in using variable fonts on the web slash with Google fonts. We'll find this detailed and interesting too. Totally. Our next article <laughs> is the seven sections you need to have in your website design proposal to win clients and 
there's also a free template. It says plus free template. So I was like, how do I verbally say that? (laughs) Great stuff. Really actionable step-by-step guide as to how to prepare a pitch for your website design. I think this can really apply to any sort of design pitch proposal. The general pillars we're talking about the process overview, the solution, the problem, introduction, all things that I've used in my pitches before for other types of design products. So I think this is really overall great for any creative that wants to have a deeper dive into how to combine sales and creative work. Yeah, we have been talking a little bit more about the business of being a creative over the last few months. Mm -hmm. And so I love when we have a chance to throw something like this in because it's a chance to realize that as a freelancer, you are a business and you need to design your own materials for getting a client on board. And to think about it like a design project when you're making your pitch to a client Mm -hmm. is a thing a lot of people don't take the time to do. It's such a rush. Like, oh, we got a client. We have to try to get them because who doesn't need work? So let's do whatever we need to do to get the client. Whereas when I had my own design company, there's a certain point when we wanted to get past the point of accept any client as they come in and like rush and like paycheck to paycheck client work. So we started taking more effort to design the process of working with a client. And this is one of those things where if somebody hadn't showed me something like this, I wouldn't have even thought to work on that part of the business. You know, there's a pretty common phrase of as a business owner, you have to make time to work on the business instead of just in the business. And this is a good excuse to think about it. I also think outlining this in an article makes it less abstract. I mean, quite honestly, these proposals aren't going to be the stuff that's making the big news blog articles or being shared that often, just seeing a step-by-step process of how to do basically internal work. This is not stuff that's Mm -hmm. showcased to the world. So I, I get especially excited when I see resources talking about those steps that can take your business one step further, but aren't necessarily showcased all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So this is probably a good point to say thank you to our awesome league members. The league has a membership that you can sign up for and get extra goodies every week in our weekly typographic. This week, our members got six awesome fonts that we found that you might want to add to your library and five gigs and jobs this week, which is a lot. That's pretty useful. So as a league member, every week you get those extra bonuses. We're also working on adding a membership section to the site. So in the near future, there'll be a lot more goodies and stuff. And it's only five bucks a month at the moment, which the price is certainly going to go up soon when we add more stuff. So great to get in now and get some of those extra perks every week. Absolutely. And I'm going to plug, there's a great welcome kit for a limited time only. You get cool league swag and personalized thank you note from us. You posted a picture of that on Instagram the other day. They're so cool. Yeah, our membership is great, and there's really lots of cool stuff coming. Our next article, super excited to share. This one has recently gotten a little bit more publicity, this initiative. It's called the People's Graphic Design Archive. And it's pretty much exactly that. It's a crowdsourced virtual archive that includes everything from finished projects to process, photos, letters, oral history, anecdotes, published and unpublished articles, essays, videos, literally all of that. So much fodder, um, so much great stuff. And 
it is meant to actually represent a diverse cultures and a broad range of interests. Because something that I kind of know and people that are in the design history field know is that our design history has been told from this one perspective that hasn't been the most inclusive of subcultures and histories that aren't totally mainstream. And once we are expanding our graphic design history, it's just going to make the field so much richer and allow students of the next generation to have this much larger scope of design history throughout time, not just the mainstream story that's often being told. And I think this is really going to change some things. So the archive, anyone can submit to it, which is something I love. Um, And the community is really meant for designers, educators, students, and even just casual viewers. It's really going to do so much for the community. I'm so excited about it. It has this hodgepodge start to it so far. It's existing on a Notion page, which is funny, which you can access from the link that we provided. So it's a little bit, it's very grassrootsy. But yeah, already- that threw me at first. I, I got to the homepage and I clicked on the archive section and said, you're now leaving this site. And I was like, wait, no, I thought I was looking at the archive. And then if you read a little bit, it's, oh, it lives on Notion. So you're just jumping over to the Notion database. Yeah. And already there's so many cool things that I could stare at for all day. And it, it really, it does range from stuff that was in popular media as in like the Seoul Olympics poster from the 80s. And then you can jump to a New York City rave flyer. And then you can jump to someone talking about design history in an interview. And it's, it's really expansive so far. I'm really excited to see what they do with all this information. It feels endless. Yeah. I mean, I haven't gotten to the end to just show how endless this is. One of my favorite parts of this right now that I'm just seeing for the first time. (laughs) They have the Napoleon Dynamite title designs in here, which I think about all the time, funny enough. All the time. I I actually was just thinking about this the other day, which is funny because I think it was one of the first instances where I was really captivated by typography designed in an analog way being showcased in this charming framing. And I, I believe they were making typography out of school lunch food. Interesting. Napoleon Dynamite, unexpected reference. I mean, I also think about Napoleon Dynamite all the time because I think about Cooper Black a lot. This is, I mean, it really <laughs> did influence me. This is crazy. I didn't even know this. So yeah, they they even letter out Fox Searchlight pictures with ketchup on a plate of tater tots. I vaguely remember that. That's funny. What a weird movie. <gasps> oh, it's so good. I should rewatch that. That's going to be on my list now. So yeah, stuff like that. Stuff that isn't most obviously in our history books, but clearly that influenced me for years to come. And so yeah, I just see that there. Very interesting. Good to bookmark. Definitely. And it's only going to get more expansive. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of expansive things, Mega. You gave us an incredible link this week that is a huge library of system UI icons. Yeah, I found this on the Twitter. I follow this guy named Corey Ginevan. Ginevan, I'm not sure. Who made this? I think there's 220 icons in here for the stuff that you would want in sort of an operating system, I guess, but could be useful all over like a little icon of a phone in portrait or landscape or a button that you could use to create a new thing in an interface or a calendar or a check or a lightning bolt or a message even a tiny little cup of coffee my favorite are the faces if you scroll to the very bottom you get a face parentheses delighted face (laughs) parentheses happy face parentheses neutral and a sad one as well the happy face just 
I love all the nuances that makes a simple smiley face. And this one's great. The chin's big, so it's a bloated happy face. <laughs> this is all very nuanced, too. They're, I don't think that's intentional. Well, I mean, who knows? But they're extremely minimalist, simple icons and read very well when extremely tiny, which is, I think was kind of the point. And designing UI, there's always an instance where I'm looking for some sort of icon, even just put next to a word. And it's often difficult because there's a lot of icon sets that exist and you end up having to hodgepodge them together from different font packs. And some of them are free. Some of them are personal use, which sometimes you can't use. This one is very simply use how you want without attribution. I would love a more detailed description of what that is, but it at least makes for usage being very clear. Yeah, I mean, I've also had the same scenario where I'm hodgepodging icons together from different libraries, and it just takes a lot of time, and to have something so nice, so simple, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I don't know. I love a good free resource, so this is another good one to bookmark. Heck yeah. Micah. Oh yeah. I think it's I think it's time. Yeah, all right. So, overall topic, we're talking about pricing and new freelance projects this week, right? Yeah, exactly. And different pricing structures you can go down and the benefits and cons of some of those, why it's important to get paid what you earn, why it's important <laughs> for the industry in general, why it's important for your business moving forward, why it's important mm. for people that you then go on to teach how to conduct business and mentor. It's it's super freaking important. And no one's really talking about this in design school, at least to the extent that we need to be. And no one's talking about, about it when you have a full-time job. So then whenever you do jump to freelance, it's a super scary thing that shouldn't be that scary. And we all just got to talk about it and it'll be less scary. I agree. And so important understanding here to start is I don't think either one of us are experts on pricing. Our studying of this topic has come from experience. Olivia, you have been freelancing for the past year or so, right? For your first time in in your life, officially full-time freelance. And so you've had to navigate the waters on your own in the last year. And I still freelance and have basically 10 years of freelancing. Like after I got out of college, I basically started freelancing and had to learn a lot of this stuff trial by fire. So all of this advice is coming from two people who are experiencing it. And so you can take it or leave it. But it's good to open up the topic about pricing because you said it's so darn scary. So set us up with what happened this week. Okay. What happened this week is that I was reached out to by a potential new client, someone I didn't know, and they wanted some lettering work done for a campaign. And I was super on board, really wanted to do the project, um, willing to bend over backwards to do whatever they needed me to do to get this going. Then, of course, there's the question of asking me what my rate was. I came back with an hourly because I'm just used to most people doing hourly billing, which I also am aware of is not the best strategy, but I I just wanted to get things going. And so they came back with a project fee. Fantastic. Definitely felt it was worth it for me. And then I was stuck with the idea of, okay, do I wait until the end of the project and collect the whole stinking fee then? Do I try to bill every couple of weeks and tell them that's how my project fee works? Do I doing a deposit, which I've never done a deposit for asking for a percentage of the total fee up front. And that's when I came to talk to you, Micah. 
Right. Okay. So there's a couple interesting topics to talk about. One is the way that you price and the other is when you price. So you touched on that you think hourly isn't necessarily the best. That's the thing you and I have talked about a lot, but maybe somebody listening has never even considered that hourly is dangerous. It almost gets the client and the practitioner working against each other, where the client wants you to do as few hours as possible to cost as little money as possible. And you working on it want to get as much money as possible. So you want as many hours as possible. I think a lot of people who I have met who bill hourly feel some guilt about it. And so they try to do it as fast as possible. But at the same time, it's a matter of, shoot, if this takes 30 hours instead of 10 hours, that's what it took me. And that hurts the client. And part of that is because we don't know how long it would take. And we bill by this much incremental hours or whatever. But like looking at this project and being like, we have no idea how much this is going to cost. If it's X amount per hour, and we really don't know how many hours that's going to take. From the client side, that's a scary thing. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Hourly, it's harder to manage expectations because the client might be seeing this bill and be like, I thought this was going to take 10 hours and took 30 hours and I have to pay you for all this. Mm-hmm. Um, it also penalizes the designer if they're an efficient designer. Because if mm, the client thinks something is going to take 40 hours, but the designer can design it in 30, why should the designer take a cut of what was expected to be a full budget of 40 hours because they were able to design efficiently? That's another reason against hourly. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I'm always thinking about what I charge. There are cases where you can do a combination of a flat rate and an hourly or do an hourly if the project seems that's the best route. I'm actually reading a book about this because I'm always trying to get better myself at pricing. And it's from Hudspah, which is a great design agency. They released this book about freelancing that I'm reading currently. And they had some great points in here. They said that oftentimes they'll try to do a flat rate plus an hourly. So they'll do a flat rate. They'll do a logo design, let's say, two revisions, final file, and discovery will all cost X amount of dollars. If the client is not happy with just two revisions and wants to keep on revising, they'll charge hourly based on anything that's out of scope. That's one way to do it, to protect yourself from not just doing all this work for a flat fee and not getting paid for the amount of hours that you go over that you were expecting. That's another work. Another case for the hourly is if things are vague, they haven't quite told you how many assets are needed and maybe they're trying to whip something together really fast and they haven't quite got the information that you need, but you want to take the job and you just don't know how many hours you do want to protect your butt. If you think that a a job could take anywhere from 30 to 60 hours and you truly don't know, and that's obviously not an ideal situation, but that might be a case where you want to bill hourly. So I think they had some good points as to which projects you could bill hourly that might make more sense. You could bill a flat rate. Mostly they're trying to convince people to do a flat rate. And I think that's all my mentors have said the same thing. Wait, okay. So can you just reiterate in a quick bullet point? You should generally be charging hourly if the scope of your work is maybe undefined or vague and Mm. you think that maybe you're not going to be able to figure out how many hours it's going to take from the get-go, which See, I don't think is an ideal situation. But Yeah, I, I, think, think, I think that is a thing to contest, that that is basically a symptom of the problem 
you should figure out exactly what's entailed first. I also am going to play devil's advocate. When you're a new freelancer, you just might not know how many hours things take and you might have to do things a few times to figure out what feels reasonable for you um, and comfortable for you. That's true. That's true. I think when I was first starting out, I had this weird gravity that was probably guilt-based towards charging a flat fee because I knew that that was better for the client. And then without knowing how long something would take, accepting that the first few times that I did a project that I might be making the equivalent of a very low hourly rate. And that was me being okay with that pain on myself, as opposed to applying that pain to the client. Because at this point in my career, after practicing XYZ a ton, I could make some giant complex thing in like an hour and that means, like, I'm making, like, I don't know, 2500 bucks an hour equivalent or whatever, as opposed to 2 bucks an hour equivalent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really real situation. If you're efficient, you should not have to take less money. I'm glad that you mentioned guilt. I think emotion is a big thing that plays into these money talks. Mm-hmm. I go through a lot of emotions, and that's a really tough thing to unlearn as well. There's certainly emotion when you give someone your rate, and they say, no, I'm not going to pay you that much. Mm-hmm. Um, that has led me to a lot of self-doubt, which ultimately was a good growing pain. Because when someone says, no, I'm not going to take your rate, you have a couple options. You could leave and say, okay, then I'm not going to take the job. It, you know, let's admit that is a pretty serious privilege to be able exactly. to do that. Exactly. But also you can negotiate okay, so if you can't give me the money, is there any sort of perks I can get from this? I think there's other negotiations, but I had encountered this scenario really early on the first couple of months. I gave my rate. It was um, $75 an hour. I was told, no, I can't pay you that. We don't even pay people that are in a higher position that much money. I ultimately did end up working with that client for several months and it paid off in certain ways, even though I wasn't getting my full rate, but I just think- Oh, that, so that you, really... you went down on your rate. I did go down on my rate. I Interesting. Did. I went down on my rate. That client, I produced two projects for that are in my portfolio that has led to other client work. Okay. See, that's also an interesting, this is going to have to be a multi-podcast thing because- <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I found an interesting clip from Chase Jarvis recently, whom I follow. Okay. He is a photographer. You probably you probably know him without knowing him. He coined the phrase, the best camera is the one you have with you, which I, I feel like- popular that. phrase now. He posted this clip online, something about a $500 client, let's say, is never going to turn into a $50,000 client or a $5,000 client because they're going to think of you at that level. If you take them at $500, you're always going to be that level, that category of worker. And so he gave this example of, let's say a client comes to you, you say, oh, that'll cost $5,000. They say, ah, oh, shoot, we were looking for 500. If you say yes to that 500, when they get a budget of $5,000, they're not gonna think, oh, I can pay the person who would accept $500 more now. That's just not how 90% of people are gonna think about it. I think that's a very fair argument. And that's that's a reason why it makes all these talks so 
difficult to navigate because yeah. it feels you know, like a lot's like, on the line. I, I agree. And you have to decide what's most important to you because I agree that client that I went down on my budget for probably thinks I'm a cheaper uh, freelancer to hire. That's very true. But I also at the time had to decide I didn't have any other freelance work. I knew I was going to get some works and I don't work for exposure, but I knew that the portfolio projects could lead to other work um, and could lead to me working with great clients. And it did. And that was a positive in that situation. It might not have been such a positive if I didn't get portfolio pieces out of it, if, I, if, I, if it wasn't so longstanding. But I'm glad you brought that up because it's also a very real thing that I have to consider now. Yeah. And there's an interesting book I love that I've mentioned to you before from a guy named Jonathan Stark. The title of the book is Hourly Billing is Nuts, which is pretty opinionated. And it's a very easy read that from a high level talks about a bunch of these topics, pricing by hour, pricing by fixed rate. And he tries to get into what it means to price by value, meaning you take a lot of effort in the beginning to make sure that you understand how this project is going to impact your client's income. Mm -hmm. And if you can reasonably guess, you will never know for sure because most clients won't know. But if you can reasonably guess that this will increase their sales by 20%. Or if you're working on some new product that you can guess that they'll make X amount in the first year or X amount a month extrapolated over some amount. Like when the client first comes to you, do some detective work to try to figure out what financial impact this is going to have for them and price it based on a fraction of how much you're going to help them as opposed to how much time and effort it would take you, which is hard. That's easy to say in general, but hard to actually do. I think that's why that's the most advanced pricing structure there is. I truly think it's the most beneficial for the designer and gets them paid the amount that they really should be. That is something that needs to be taught a little bit more because I really don't know much about it, but I would like to someday be doing a value-based pricing. Something else that I also read in this book was really interesting. If you're getting hired to do work in, let's say, your style, rather than mimicking a mood board or mimicking another artist, you should be getting paid more because you're the only person that can do that style. Mm. Like if that's a See, that's a layer of confidence that I think a lot of us don't start out with. And I know. maybe don't even earn by doing. By just doing work, it doesn't increase your confidence in how unique and interesting your work is. It literally takes other people coming in and being like, no, you deserve more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. that. That is a great message. I mean, if you're scared of value-based pricing, that's one step forward you can make towards closer to being a value-based pricer. All right, before we wrap this up, We could probably talk forever about this and should probably make more nuanced episodes of nerd alerts for specific topics and stuff, but this is fun to just start getting into. So one of the last things that was actually really important to you this week was the fact that you had never asked for a deposit up front, which blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it didn't blow my mind because I'm always like, uh, I don't know. I'm a freelancer. I beggars can't be choosers. I feel like that's asking for a lot. I mean, that was honestly my argument before I came into it, but you had such great stuff to say. And I would love if you could share why we should be asking for a deposit on a flat rate fee. It's a commitment on both sides, right? To, to work on a project, you know, that it's going to take your time. Your time is limited no matter what. You could either be spending your time trying to get new clients, which is 
potentially more valuable than the client that you have or working on other client stuff or working on something for yourself that could be making money. So any time that you have is valuable to you to be doing something else. So that means it is not just a commitment for them to be giving you money, but it's a commitment for you to be saying, you know what, I'm going to do your project over some other thing. And asking for 50% or even 100% upfront is saying, okay, if you're serious, I will do this work for you, but prove to me that you're serious too. Hey, that's a great point. You had a good point when you were talking to me, when you buy a product from a store, let's say you buy a broom, you don't pay for the broom once you figure out it does the job and is a great <laughs> right. broom, but just so it's a silly basic example. And you could say it like a printer or something like that. You pay for what you want up front before you even get the product. So it's a similar idea. You convinced me very well. I ended up sending them an invoice because they wanted to get started really soon, but it changed my perspective completely as a designer. You know, it's part of that is a certain level of trust, knowing that if the printer that you just bought doesn't work, you can return it and get a refund or another printer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a layer of trust that a lot of freelancers don't offer mm. that you could. That's fair. And that's that's a, a new way potentially to think about it is, yes, I'm asking for 100% upfront. If you don't like it, you can get your money back. Maybe even a 30-day warranty or something like that. And that's potentially scary. It means yeah. being a little intentional about, okay, I'm going to take this money that I'm making from this project, set it aside and not spend it at first, hold on to it for 30 days. But that imbues it with this trust that I can trust these people to uh, not screw me over. And that's a thing that isn't naturally built into a lot of freelance, but could be. I totally feel that. I'm going to cut us off there. Yeah, that's fair. I could talk for days. I mean, we're definitely going to be talking about this more. I'm trying to offer any expert tips that we can. A lot more people are becoming freelancers these days, especially in this world we're in. And we don't know the future. So if any of this stuff was valuable, if there's topics that you wish that we could cover in the future or go into more detail, send us an email or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and let us know because we would love to talk about the stuff that was most interesting to you. Absolutely. Cool. A what a great again. week. This was so fun. As always, love hanging out with you, Olivia. Love hanging out with all of you who are listening. It is awesome to be able to do this. So uh, we'll have more fun stuff next week. And in the meantime, check out all the cool links in the newsletter and say hi. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.